right, everybody, we are back. July 4th style for episode 22, Naive Enhancers. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Happy 4th, Yos. What up, man? Hey, man. How's it going? Uh, we're all uh, done with the ISSCR, and uh, I'm excited for this new title. That's such a provocative title there, Naive Enhancers. I know, because it's like a play on a lot of words. If someone doesn't know that there's an enhancer in science, it just sounds like uh, a, a naive, enha- I should say it like naive enhancer. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's a it's a, it's a cool title, and it's relating to a paper that just was published, and uh, the, the the paper was by our guest, Dr. Paul Tizar, who will be on to talk about it. So I'll I'll, I'll kind of I'll leave it a little bit not you know a little bit in limbo until we get there. But I think we got a really awesome show and a great guest. So uh, I think we should uh, unless we got some business here. I know we're chock full. We should probably move through. Let's think here. Uh, what do we got? I guess I should just repeat everything. StemCellPodcast.com, at StemCellPodcast on Twitter, Facebook, uh, StemCellPodcast at gmail.com. Those are the ways you can reach Yos and I. We got a good response from our ISSCR show. Um, I thought it was really cool and a uh, good concept that we'll have to do at other meetings and things around town. Met a lot of people. Um, but I think, uh, Yos, you got anything you want to share? If no, I'd not, like to echo that. I'd just like to repeat. I mean, we we get the messages on Facebook. We've even gotten some good rants submitted. We're working through those, and uh, we definitely are paying attention to the audience. So um, just uh, want to echo that. And uh, why don't we get into the science roundup? What do you think? Let's round it up, man. Kick it off. All right. So there was a JAMA study. Was that the Journal of the American Medical Association? I love that. JAMA, yeah, JAMA. JAMA showing that uh, a stem cell transplant reversed sickle cell anemia in uh, disease in adults. This is um, the patients received uh, hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, from uh, siblings of their of theirs, and they were matched essentially uh, for their T cells, which happens about twenty percent of the time. So that was pretty cool. Wow, that's you awesome! Find that in JAMA. There was a nature communication study showing that a healthy mouse offspring could be born from deeply frozen and then thawed testicles from that came from <laughs> newborn mice. Wait, what? You know, these Japanese researchers are on this sort of stuff. So they basically froze testes from newborn uh, mice and then thawed them, cultured the cells, induced uh, spermatogenesis, and then created healthy offspring from uh, from the thawed testes. So, so, so how are they envisioning this would work? Like, would they just freeze somebody's testicles at some point? And then, like, if yeah. they were, like, getting old? Because we know that with age... That's where the problem with sperm come in. Is that the idea? Yeah, as far as I understand it. Yeah, freeze which, them down. Yeah, why not? If you women can freeze their eggs, now guys can freeze a ball, I guess. So uh, I'm just uh, wait. Do they have to cut them off? Like, or do you just like? I'm so. I'm so I, I didn't read the material methods, but I'm just imagining like if the doctor's like, "Look, you, here's your choice. You can either you can let it go and you're you'll never be able to have kids, or we can freeze your testicles. Yeah. What do you want to do? So basically, they probably have to cut it off because they couldn't freeze them on block, right? I couldn't be walking around with like a like one of those uh, Mr. Frosties we put in the minus eighty around. My well, I, I assume they just take one or some of the tissue. I don't know. I but, don't know. I have uh, to read that. Yeah. The link will be up on the website. Everyone check it out. Sorry, yeah. Man. There was a cell report study showing 
find that uh, the binding of amyloid beta or A beta uh, to pairs of APP, that's the amyloid precursor protein, uh, the, uh, so the binding of A-beta to APP molecules triggers signaling that causes neuronal hyperactivity in the hippocampus. And this elevated activity uh, has been observed in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, there's an important uh, finding over in cell reports. Um, so pretty much A-beta is bad, right? I think that's what we've established over the past like yeah, decades here. there's been so many trials on that, but you know, where has that gone? All the, I have no you idea. Know, A-beta... I antibodies and all that. So anyhow, uh, another cell report study showing that uh, obese people lack a protein called NUX, N-U-C-K-S, which is essential for regulating blood glucose levels. And you can find that in cell reports. I never heard of NUX, but I thought that was an interesting NUX. gene name. I don't yeah. know NUX. Another nature communication study showing that GI cells, gastrointestinal cells, can be converted into insulin-producing cells only in response to glucose, uh, which is important. You want uh, the insulin to be produced in response to glucose. And this was done by deactivating the transcription factor FOXO1. Uh, hmm. Yeah, so that you can find that in nature communication. There is always that thing, Yosef, where people have said, like, do you really need the cell type of that actually releases what you need, or can you make any cell type release what you need? I remember for dopamine, that was always an argument. You know, you don't yeah. need to make a dopaminergic neuron; you could just make a cell that expresses dopamine. So yeah. there was always this idea of just just manipulating a cell or doing something that, to produce the endpoints. I guess that's what they were trying to do. That's cool. Yeah, and uh, converting GI cells uh, is a lot. I, I, I guess it's it's an important finding because uh, I don't know many studies that are doing that. Um, and I guess it's close enough. I don't know. They're not pancreatic beta islet cells. But, um, yeah, so cool. you can find that in Nature Communications. Did you see uh, this week in Nature that Metalopov is back? Uh, he showed that IPS cells had DNA methylation patterns that were typical of parental somatic cells and that nuclear transfer and in vitro fertilization-derived human embryonic stem cells were better in terms of their methylation patterns. They were more similar than nuclear transfer cells. So uh, we've, we discussed this, I guess, two episodes ago that um, nuclear transfer, I guess, is ideal over, uh, you know, the IPS reprogramming. Uh, so you can find that in nature this week. Um, he's killing it out there, huh? Yeah, man. He's got the tools and the skills and, I guess, you know, access to IVF clinics. Um, did, I don't know if you saw that nature also retracted the two stat papers this week. I did, man. I did. So goodbye, good riddance. Goodbye, stat. Another one bites the dust. Okay, uh, there was a science article describing a supermassive black hole in a galaxy that's uh, 245 million light years away from Earth, and it was an extremely fast winds of ionized. It had extremely fast winds of ionized gas flowing from it that were five times faster than normal. So you can find that over in science. I always love the. I like know, black holes, man. Yeah, the idea of just sort of like this sinkhole that. You know, it just reminds me of a flushing toilet. You know, that little hole in the bottom that 
just it all goes to i remember uh, look so real quick i remember looking up the definition of black hole and it was amazing it was something like it's a region of space time from which like gravity prevents anything including light from escaping and i'm just thinking to myself damn that's pretty badass yeah and then the event horizon all that stephen hawkins you know crazy stuff so uh there was a cancer biology and therapy study where they used aav2 or adeno associated virus uh two to kill triple negative uh, breast cancer. This is a very aggressive form of breast cancer, and they did it in vitro and in mice. And uh, the AV2 infected cells, and uh, and these cells had more Ki67, CMYK, and uh, cas- uh, caspase activation. Uh, so presumably, you know, initiating cell death. Um, so you can find that in cancer biology and therapy. Uh, there was a JCI study, Journal of Clinical Investigation, uh, showing that a gene defect in DYT1 uh, can produce dystonia mice, which is uh, you know uh, something that happens in humans. So we may have a new mouse model. Um, so DYT1 uh, causes brain cells to make less active form of torsin A during brain development. And hmm. uh, these mice had uh, twisting and curling motions. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, there was a nature study showing that uh, in gram-negative bacteria, the bacteria that have a impermeable lipid-based outer membrane, the study showed that how uh, uh, the bacteria transport their barrier building blocks, the lipopolysaccharides, to the outer surface. And uh, more importantly, they also demonstrate that the bacteria die if the this pathway uh, and uh, that they, they identified as blocked. So it uh, may make up for the lack of, you know, how we have very few antibiotics for these drug-resistant bacteria. This may be, uh, you know, an important finding towards finding a way of uh, killing these cells or bacteria. So uh, you can find that in nature. Um, there was a neuron study uh, analyzing uh, A-beta's effects in the hippocampus in uh, early, uh, Alzheimer's disease. Again, uh, they showed uh, that in the earliest stages, uh, can by blocking uh, endocannabinoids, uh, can affect the memory of um, in the hippocampus. They looked at uh, rat brain slices and more specifically at pyramidal cells and interneurons. And they showed that endocannabinoids suppress hippocampal interneurons and uh, A-beta also impairs the blocking of the interneurons. So you can find that in neuron. I thought that was an interesting study. Cannabinoid science fascinates me. It really does. Yeah, it's so new. It's, it shouldn't be, but it is. <laughs> I don't know if you saw Raja Katapa lost. Uh, we had him on the show. That's sort of a not necessarily science roundup worthy, but I, I thought we should mention it. But he got 44% of the vote. I saw that. We were close. talking to him at ISSCR, and I guess the, I guess the ticket wants, the party wants him to come back and rerun. They think he's got a really good shot yeah the national uh the dnc is very interested in him and hopefully he can take uh rush holt's place as a phd in congress um uh real quick i'm going to just bang out two papers uh there was a science paper from austin smith's lab he's a friend of the show uh showing that 12 transcription factors are um 
can be uh, used for self-renewal in stem cells via just 16 interactions. And they used a Microsoft computer model in the study. And 26 out of the 37 model-generated predictions were correct when they tested them experimentally in the lab. And uh, the effects of knocking down uh, certain transcription factors, they were able to test these, uh, you know, predictions from the computers in the lab. So you can find that in science. And uh, just real quick, I'll just uh, talk about a science paper showing that dinosaurs were mesothermic. Uh, This is a new metabolic category where they can raise their body temperature but cannot maintain it. Uh, So it's in between the cold-blooded and warm-blooded animals. So they're not endoderms or uh, ectoderms like lizards are. They're more like sharks. So uh, you can find that over in science. All right, awesome. so that's it for nice, me. Man. Yeah, what do you All got? Right, let's uh, let's see what I got. So I am just going to start off by putting the stat stuff to bed. But you already did that. I will <laughs> say though, there was an article in the Boston Globe there where uh, Rudy Yanish, who's a uh, a big time stem cell researcher at MIT, he pointed out that through this whole fiasco. Um, there was a really a silence from Harvard. If you didn't realize, all the stuff we heard about in the news was focused on Japan and the Japanese scientists involved. But one of the papers, senior author, was a gentleman, uh, Charles Vacanti, of yeah. uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, which is a Harvard affiliate. And no one was talking to them at all. And um, Rudy, in the paper, um, pointed it out that he said that um, pretty much that Harvard should be more forthcoming. He said that the silence of Brigham of Harvard was deafening. Wow. And he finds he that said this, that? He fo- yeah, he said, I think the silence of Harvard was deafening. I find this just really not good and a bit problematic. There are so many great stem cell biologists at Harvard, and I think they are embarrassed by it. Wow. And, and you know, he's right, because this guy hadn't said anything about anything until just they got retracted then he was like oh, all right yeah there was some un-. but he led the study so he should have been out there in the news and he wasn't uh anyway good riddance to stat uh let's see next paper i'm just going to plug it for the people that did it this is a paper out of my lab and collaboration with sally temple and alan brain it's in neuron it's a temporal transcriptome analysis of in, in vitro human cerebral cortical development um, that's a neuron. It's online. Um, you guys, go check that out. Congratulations. Say it again. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Congrats to everyone involved. It was a nice, it was a really great collaborative effort. Let's see. Uh, Geron, this, the science behind the original Geron trial, uh, which was the first approved human embryonic stem cell trial, uh, might resume again. So this was discontinued in 2011. It was a it was a clinical trial using human embryonic stem cells to treat spinal cord injury. They were generating oligodendrocytes. I should bring this up to Paul when he comes on today. Um, and let's see. Two years later, uh, there was a company launched by two former Geron CEOs, and they 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 basically purchased the stem cell and regenerative aspect of Geron, and now. It's called Asterius. Uh, it's a subdivision of Biotime. And looks like they're going to resume this HESC spinal cord injury trial. So let's see if they can push it through on a second time here. Awesome. So that's that. They're trying to salvage it. Uh, there was a paper that, that says that stem cells can form light-sensitive 3D retinal tissue. We, we, we know that there's a lot of work to try to recreate the eye and eye cells, retina cells, uh, using pluripotent stem cells. And they induced... 
human stem cells to create a 3D retina structure that really responds to light, which is really cool. They grew iPS cells in a culture dish. This is in Nature Communications, and they were able to guide them down and take them to cells that took on characteristics of retinal cells without adding many of the chemicals that they typically have to use to get the cells to mature. And they've spontaneously formed these 3D structures, um, you know, that, that like these optic cup-like structures that have kind of previously been described. And they, they were able to make the retina and photoreceptor cells. And then they were able to show that they were light responsive by doing these like flash of lights and me- measuring electrical response. So they claim to have basically created a miniature human retina with architectural organization, but also the functional characteristics of being able to, uh, to, to recognize light. So that's cool. This is awesome, man. I was reading this. This is in Blood, Blood. And uh, the title was, uh, this is the article, Study Identifies a Link Between Gut Bacteria and Post-SCT Survival, so Stem Cell Transplant Survival. Have you seen this, Yos? No, no. Sounds so what they said was that, like, you know, there's a variety of different bacteria that's in our GI tract. And um, the patients who undergo allogeneic, some people who get these allogeneic stem cell transplants, you know, allogeneic is from another patient. Mm-hmm. There's been research, so in other words, it's not genetically matched. It demonstrated that these intense treatments involved with this allogeneic transplantation can damage the transplant recipient's gut micro, how do you say, microbiota? Microbiota, microbiota I say. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, um, they're immunosuppressing the patients. Right. And- so it kills off their flora. And this re- this re- this is um, basically reduces the overall diversity of the bacteria. And they, they thought that this could be, maybe they could predict the survival of transplants based on the uh, you know the flora or the bacteria already present. So they characterized bacterial 16S ribosomal RNA gene sequences. Um, they looked and then they did a follow-up. And the results showed that the level of diversity correlated with survival outcomes. Awesome. Um, and so that was, like I said, I believe this was in, let me see if I can find, this was in blood. Check that out. I think that's a really cool idea. You know, there's a lot of links to like the GI tract and disease. It's been, been such a hot field and a lot wow. of it's been controversial. But here, it makes sense. I mean, here they're saying that, you know, I don't know the statistics of these things and how well it works. Um, but it's, it says the results underscore the significance of the gut microbiota in allogeneic stem cell transplantation, yeah, I mean, people, and they can predict survival. So if they can do that, that's pretty awesome. There's more of them than us in our body. There's about a gallon of bacteria in our guts. And uh, yeah, but it's like they're, they're one-tenth the size of our cells. So that, you know, that gallon winds up being more of them than us, you know, in terms of DNA content and actual cell numbers. So um Cool. I mean, there's yeah, a, yeah. I thought it was very interesting. Um, this 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 was a uh, a headline that uh, wasn't really very cheery. It says cancer may never be completely eradicated. Um, so this was a study that was done. Basically, um, they they said that they showed that cancer is as old as multicellular life on Earth and will probably never be eradicated. This was a uh, Tom Bosch from Kiel University in Germany. So it's a research team. They're basically evolutionary biologists. They've been looking at stem cells and the regulation of tissue growth in hydra. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said they discovered tumor-bearing polyps in two different species of hydra. It's an organism very similar to coral. Mm-hmm. And this provides proof that tumors exist in primitive and evolutionary old animals. Uh, so they're looking at a molecular analysis of the tumors. They find these genes that become active. Um, what and about the they naked say that mole the research rat? confirms that primordial animals... 
um, provide an, provide enormous amount of information to help us understand such complex problems as cancer, and it makes it unlikely that the war on cancer can ever really be won. This oh, is in Nature Communications. That's, that's a lot of a nature Debbie Downer, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a real downer. I know. Let me see if my next paper is a little bit of a bigger. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot um, of Nature Communications and Cell Reports lately. Those two journals. A lot of open are, access. It's yeah. all open access. So let's see. There's the next one here: stem cell slow re- retinal degeneration and dry AMD clinical trial. So there's two forms of. Um, Macular degeneration. You have the dry form, which when you really don't, you might not even have blindness. It's just you have these abnormal protein deposits in your eye that the doctor can tell you is the beginning of AMD. That's dry. And then once it gets out of control, they call it wet because you have infiltration of blood vessels and they get leaky. And that's when it's really bad. That's what the uh, the therapies really go after is the wet form. There's not really anything on the market for dry. So this is a clinical trial using uh, human neural stem cells for people with age-related macular degeneration. This is from Stem Cells, Inc. Stem Cells, Inc. has these neural stem cells that they've been putting into patients for different things. And so um, they have some preliminary evidence to suggest that their neural stem cells can be beneficial, possibly, in dry AMD. I haven't read the full thing, but we'll put the link up for everyone to check out. Nice, nice. Uh, stem cell reports, human embryonic stem cell derived MSCs or mesenchymal stem cells outperform bone marrow mesenchymal stem cells in the treatment of a, a model of multiple sclerosis. So this is really interesting because for a long time people have been claiming to use, you know, people are saying you should use bone marrow MSCs, you know, it's an adult stem cell, blah, blah, blah for MS. And so these, these, this group here, the senior, the senior author is Robert, Robert Lanza, who's at ACT, and Ren Hezu. I'm not really sure where they're from. Again, it's in stem cell reports. Basically, they compared human ES-derived mesenchymal stem cells or bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stem cells. And what they found is that the human ES enter the CNS more efficiently, and, exp- and they express... Um, fewer pro-inflammatory cytokines hmm. uh, and had better functional output. So their point being, just because you can get the same cell from an adult, you know, pool, it doesn't mean that it's going to be better functionally. I thought that was an interesting approach to yeah. show. Yeah, that's cool. Side note is that Robert Lanza is uh, the you know I think he's either the CEO or the CSO of uh, ACT, which has a human ES derived cell in clinical trial. So I'm sure he's. They're trying to pump up the fact that, you know, human embryonic stem cells are good and possibly even a better option than others. So um, two more here. One from uh, Donwei Hongfu, who's, uh, I believe, what floor in the MSC? Below you or below yeah, you, right? She, I think she's below us in Memorial Sloan Kettering, yeah. So Sloan Kettering, and it's called, it's a resource, it's called an iCRISPR platform for rapid, multiplexable, and inducible genome editing in uh, human pluripotent stem cells. So they generated a very rapid and efficient way to generate biallelic gene knockouts. So if you want to know, you know, what your gene is doing in, in the human system, you can get rid of it now in a very uh, rapid way. It's a... Uh, there's also a rapid one-step creation of biallelic mutations, uh, and there's an efficient introduction of biallelic precise nucleotide alterations and inducible gene knockout during specific stages of differentiation. So you can get all those things with this new thing, and if you can, as simple as they claim, that's pretty awesome because sometimes we want to know how a gene is performing once it becomes, let's say, the nervous system, but we don't want to mess it up in the 
pluripotent cell. So this technique would allow you to induce the mutation once they become neural. So I think that's a really awesome yeah, technique. Cool. CRISPR we, is uh, yeah. obviously pretty pretty awesome, and this is a, just a better, more efficient way to, to do it. Nice. So that's from Sloan Kettering. And then the last paper here is uh, Cell Stem Cell. Says, uh, and the title is Epigenomic Comparison Reveals Activation of Seed Enhancers During Transition from Naive to Prime Pluripotency. The, the first authors are Daniel Factor and Olivia Coradin. Um, and this, the senior author, is our guest. So I'm just going to shut up and continue to the next portion of the show. Yeah, why don't you bring on our guest? Our guest uh, for, day, for today is Dr. Paul Tizar. Uh, Paul is an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, Department of Genetics and Genome Sciences. Man, that's such a mouthful. Paul, Paul graduated with a BS in bio from Case Western Reserve University and then went on to earn his PhD from the University of Oxford under Sir Richard Gardner. He then continued his training uh, as a postdoc at the NIH, or the NINDS, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, uh, in the lab of Dr. Ron Mackay. And so in both, really, in his grad and postdoc, he was really looking and trying to understand the molecular mechanisms and the therapeutic potential of pluripotent stem cells, which led him to his discovery of the epiblast stem cell, which he'll talk a little bit about. Paul's from Cleveland in 2009, returned home, joined Case is a faculty member in, in the Department of Genetics, uh, where he continues his studies um, looking at pluripotent stems, pluripotent stems to understand and treat human disease. He's a me- member of the Center for Stem Cell Regenerative Medicine. He serves as a director of the Pluripotent Stem Cell Facility. Um, in 2011, Paul was named a Robertson Investigator for the New York Stem Cell Foundation. It's, it's a very prestigious award. Only four, <clears throat> he was one of only four awardees, and they recognize and support scientists leading their kind of this. This and the, I say the next generation of stem cell scientists. Uh, he's received numerous uh, awards, including the Harold Weintraub Award and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the Beddington Medal of British Society for Dev Bio. And I'll lastly say that Paul enjoys wearing neon-colored sunglasses. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Tzar, T-E-S-A-R-C-W-R-U. He's a good follow. Welcome to the show, Paul. How's it going, man? Chris and Yosef, thanks for having me on, and congrats on the success of the podcast thus far. Oh, great. Thanks, thanks yeah. man. It was good seeing you, too, the other day. Yeah, we yeah it was great to see you guys at ISSCR, um, a beautiful city back home now in Cleveland. It's a beautiful sunny day here, so life is good. Can't get much better, really. Yeah, what you, would you think of the conference in general? Yeah, I thought the conference was uh, was a really good opportunity to sort of meet and span generations from young. I know you had one of the high schoolers on uh, your your roundup there, and uh, to also everyone everyone generally uh, kind of shows up with this meeting. It's a good opportunity to interact and sort of see what's next and on the cutting edge. So it was a really great opportunity. Nice, nice. Yeah, so, I had a good time. I thought it was good. We we had our we had our roundup show um, last episode, or should I say roundup? Our ISSCR roundup. We had a really diverse group of people. I noticed that. Um, when I, when I don't really notice how diverse it is until I was actually pulling people aside and talking to them. And they come from a wide range of backgrounds, which is very, very interesting. So, um, all right, enough on that, Paul. Let's, let's, get to, uh, let's get to you, your work. So I guess before we get into the paper that was just published, congrats, by the way, let's uh, give everybody a little background to your stem cell world. Tell us. Tell us kind of how you got there uh, into stem cells, what your training, you know, what you did in your training and how that kind of springboarded into your lab now. 
So when I was an undergrad here at Case Western Reserve, I was really fascinated by sort of understanding the, the human body. And what sort of really struck me was that we're made up of hundreds, maybe thousands of different cell types, and that each of these is unique. And in our adult, our skin stays skin and bone stays bone. But what really sort of struck me and really sort of, sort of uh, definitively cemented my interest in stem cell biology was that the understanding that one cell type could turn into another functional cell type. And so when I was an undergrad here, I was studying mesenchymal stem cell biology, and, and we've talked to, you guys have talked a bit about these cells. So these are cell types that can make bone, cartilage, uh, and, and fat. But what I really wanted to do in my graduate work was to understand sort of the earliest beginnings of how uh, mammalian development ensues. And so I went to Oxford to work uh, with a preeminent developmental biologist and embryologist uh, named Richard Gardner. And I was really intrigued about how the early cells within the embryo were capable to form you know, this entire complex structure uh, uh, that is you and I. And so I wanted to understand these early cell fate transitions. And so at the time, of course, uh, mouse embryonic stem cells and human embryonic stem cells had been already derived from from the early early embryo, but but the stage at which these cells are derived is really before implantation, right? So mammals are are really unique in that they have this pre-implantation period, right? You, you know what I mean by when I say pre-implantation, which is before it implants into the female reproductive tract. Yes. So what I what I wanted to understand was was there a stage post-implantation, but before gastrulation, before all of these cell types started to be formed in the early embryo. And so during those, those studies, uh, we discovered a cell type called the epiblast stem cell. And this is derived from this early post-implantation period. And so the next question is, why does anybody care about this, right? And so what happens is, is that there's really now two pluripotent states, right? There's a cell type that you can get from the early pre-implantation embryo, and there's a cell type that you can get from the early post-implantation embryo. And this is a pretty unique uh, transition, right? We're mammals, but most of uh, the animal kingdom is not. And so we have this very unique period where we go from a pre-implantation to a post-implantation uh, phase And so I wanted to utilize these cells to understand that early developmental and evolutionary period. Moreover, pluripotent cells obviously have the capacity to differentiate into all cell types of the body. So understanding these early phases of pluripotent stem cells, we posited would provide us uh, early cues about how to make downstream phase. Paul, just, just to be clear, though, I mean, for everyone there understanding that they're, that they're still pluripotent. Both cells are pluripotent. Both Embryonic stem cells, mouse embryonic stem cells, human embryonic stem cells, which are derived from the blastocyst, from the inner cell mass of this pre-implantation embryo, and epiblast stem cells, which are derived from the early post-implantation, are pluripotent. They have the capacity to differentiate into all cell types. Really? Well, I thought organism. there was a difference with trophectoderm. Is that not true? Well, so when we talk about trophectoderm, there have been reports in vitro that some pluripotent cells, um, human embryonic stem cells initially have the capacity to access these early extraembryonic fates, such as trophectoderm, right, which is the fetal portion of the placenta. Now, I think in vitro, some of these cells have the plasticity to make these extraembryonic tissues, but I think it's not their normal developmental trajectory. And so in, in sort of most contexts, when we're talking about in vivo or in generally in most in vitro contexts, mouse ES cells, epilepsy stem cells, human ES cells, human IPS cells, mouse iPS cells, 
all have the capacity to make all cell types of the embryo proper, including the germline. Uh, generally limited capacity, if at all, to make extra embryonic structures like trophectin. Cool. Is, Sorry, is, there, off, is there any difference in the cloning efficiency of uh, ground state versus epiblast stem cells? Yeah, so, so Joseph, I think maybe it's important to talk a little bit about the terminology because it gets a little bit confusing here. But in the pluripotency world, uh, generally the terminology that has stuck has been naive and primed, right? So we have pluripotent cells from the earlier stage or from the pre-implantation stage. Those are the classic mouse embryonic stem cells. And then we have the epiblast stem cells from the early post-implantation embryo. Those have been referred to as naive and primed, right? So naive being sort of the earlier cells and then primed meaning they're right on the cusp of differentiation. So they're more mature, still pluripotent, but just about to differentiate into any of the downstreams. So so then just go so go back. So now you're there, you find this cell, right? So now you you, you these epiblast stem cells. So just kind of walk us through the next phase of, of, of what you were what you were looking at. Well I think in, in the early phases uh, most people didn't really believe us. Um, there was a lot of question on if these cells were really any different, if they were just some cell culture artifact or sort of mutated variety of embryonic stem cells. Because people had tried for many, many years, decades, to derive cells from the, from, from the epiblast, right? And so the epiblast, just before gastrulation, you would argue would be sort of the, the most proximal cell type just before you can differentiate to, say, to norectoderm or to a neuron or to mesoderm and a cardiomyocyte or, or endoderm in an islet cell. And so you, you'd want to understand the basic biological properties of this epiblast state. And so people had tried for many, many years. And so we published a paper in Nature back-to-back with a paper um, uh, from Ludic Gallier and Roger Peterson's group at Cambridge. Uh, so there was an Oxford-Cambridge uh, paper back to back, which was which was fun, uh, describing <laughs> these epiblast stem cells for the for the first time. But initially, and during the review process, uh, it was it was it was quite critical on whether these cells actually existed. Mm. Um, but what we went on to show was that that they were representative of that epiblast state. And so now we and many other labs have utilized these cell types to understand that really important developmental phase by which. Uh, cells immediately will acquire their, their downstream phase. So more or less, we can model that epiblast phase and that early events of gastrulation in the dish now, um, which is, I think, a, a pretty pretty amazing phenomenon, and it's a pretty special and important phenomenon uh, in all of our development. Can we uh, just, a little bit of background, talk about maybe some of the uh, markers of these cells? Like, in my mind, I think of ground state or naive as... I guess it's now called as uh, Rex1 positive or ZFP42 and the epiblast state as, uh, I guess, it, eomes is one of the markers. Are, are, are these still true or is there newer stuff out there that I don't uh, know about or is that just very uh, primitive? No, yes, that's, that's, that's really uh, an important point here and you're, you're pretty much spot on. And initially this was the reason that no one believed us that these cells were, were real is that so the mouse embryonic stem cells have a transcription factor network that's quite unique uh, from that of the epiblast stem cells, but it's actually more or less a lack of transcription of these transcription factors that's defining of the epiblast stem cell state. And so things like the one you mentioned, which is Rex1 and ESR beta and others, really define this early, naive, ground state mouse ES cell, whereas the epiblast stem cells 
lose the expression of these transcription factors, and they begin to express things that are normally considered more mature sort of downstream markers, things like SOX17, GATA6, eomesodermin. Many of these markers are expressed in downstream, early downstream derivatives during gastrulation, but they begin to be expressed in these quote-unquote primed epiblast stem cells as they prepare for the transition from a pluripotent cell to you know, somatic cell so uh, within the embryo and in the adult. My, my question for you is, is, is this a distinction without a difference? If they're both you know, pluripotent, what, it seems like they're just putting on different clothes as they mature slightly. Well, that was really the, the main reason uh, why we initiated this large-scale uh, genomic, transcriptomic, and epigenomic comparison between mouse ES cells and epiblast stem cells uh, in the latest paper that was just published in Cell Stem Cell, because uh, we wanted to understand, you know, what were the differences between these states, and it was, was it really sort of as, as you're suggesting, which is just the subtleties in the transcriptome, right? A few genes are different here, a few genes are different there. Or was it, was it that these were really two defined and distinct developmental states uh, with, with quite unique uh, epigenetic uh, regulation? You know, so for me, uh, as, a, as a developmental biologist, I'm really intrigued by the epiblast stem cell giving me or people some insight into gastrulation just in general. So, you know, for everyone out there, uh, gastrulation is this it's kind of a defining event during early, early development, right? I mean, Paul, how early in human development is gastrulation? Is it like two, three, three, four weeks? I mean, is that late, too late? I mean, it's pretty uh, early, it's right? About, it's about two weeks in human. It's uh, around embryonic day 6.5. Uh, so about a week in mouse and about two weeks in human when, when we begin gastrulation. So in gastrulation is really when those three layers are, are starting to form, and that's when the body plan and everything starts. So that's a very, very pivotal point during uh, development. So I guess the question would be then, Paul, from this cell, from this epiblast stem cell, what, what, did, did it help you learn a little bit you know, more into that process of gastrulation, whether it be kinetics, timing, or something, events, something like that? Because it's a very early time that's very inaccessible. So I imagine this this will give you some uh, be able to give you some insight into that process. Quite certainly. So the epiblast stem cells, as you say, really provide us direct access to these events that happen around the time of gastrulation. And previously, when we're thinking about mouse embryonic stem cells, they have to transition through the epiblast state before they differentiate. But they do so in a not quite homogeneous manner because they're all sort of differentiating at slightly different periods. And so what we what we now have with these epiblast stem cells is really uniform cultures that allow us to access this really immediate transition to these downstream states. I think the other major important finding that epiblast stem cells taught us was that the human, the standard human embryonic stem cell and now the human iPS cells really exist in this latter epiblast-like state. And so at the time, mouse embryonic stem cells and human embryonic stem cells existed, but they were quite different. They relied on completely different signaling pathways to grow them, different media, different culture conditions, morphology was completely different. And sort of the overwhelming idea was, well, mice are mice, human are human, and we they're just, they're just different. Mice and human are different. But when we derive the epiblast stem cells from from the early post-implantation epiblast just before gastrulation, and we really define their molecular features and their identity, uh, it became quite clear that human embryonic stem cells and iPS cells really share these defining 
uh, molecular features and cellular identity with this epiblast state, which I think was a was a was a really monumental uh, sort of frame shifting understanding of of what pluripotency means, and that it can really exist in two states, and that it has allowed us uh, to really begin to utilize these cells, I think, more robustly to model gastrulation and to produce downstream cell fates uh, for potential therapeutics. Nice. So, uh, given that, uh, tell us about these enhancers in your paper. And so, in, in the most recent paper in cell stem cell, as I said, we wanted to understand the difference between these naive cells, right, these mouse embryonic stem cells from the pre-implantation embryo and these epiblast stem cells. And as you suggested, Yosef, maybe they just have a few genes that are different, they're interesting, or they are really globally different cells. And so to understand that, we wanted to profile them both transcriptionally with RNA-seq as well as looking at the different covalent histone modifications uh, to understand how their epigenome, right, this, the, these marks on the DNA that allow certain genes uh, to be active or inactive or poised. And so we looked specifically at regulatory elements called enhancers, right? And these enhancers, you can think of them like switches or, or rheostats that turn up or turn down individual genes uh, that are expressed within the cell. And so we saw initially that just looking at the, the gene expression patterns between these two cell types, that they were, they were pretty similar. There was a, a relatively small number of genes that were differentially expressed, as, as we discussed earlier. But what we found quite striking is, is that there was a quite disproportionate number of enhancers uh, that were different, really suggesting that the epigenome of these cells was different. Mm. Right? And so we were pretty, we were pretty excited about this, this finding uh, initially. And we, we, we sort of said, well, maybe something's wrong. Maybe we're doing something wrong. How can we explain there's very few genes that are different, but the, sort of the global epigenome is, is completely different? See, that's really awesome. You know, this, as we further, as we get more into, um, you know, as we get more of these technical advances, big data and all these things, you, you see the, some of, you see, start to see things that you're going to miss. So, for example, a lot of time, you know, over the past, we've been looking at gene changes. And, you know, we were looking at, we were looking at single gene changes. Then we were looking at microarray, big gene sets. Then we were looking at all these things, big changing. Oh, not many things are changing, but just because... The genes aren't necessarily so differently, differentially expressed. It doesn't mean that you have some architectural differences and things like that. So this is what you're identifying. And I, Paul, could you just, in a in a general way, uh, and I don't know if uh, just explain to the audience what an enhancer actually is. I'm not sure if everybody out there is actually familiar with enhancers. Maybe it's a good time to really explain what an enhancer does. Sure. So when we think of a, a gene, we think of uh, a region of the genome, right, a, a DNA sequence that is transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein, and those proteins then have specific effects within the cell. But each cell type has a particular identity, which means it has a certain set of genes turned on and a certain set of genes turned off. And so these are regulated largely at the beginning of the gene area, which is called the promoter. And then that, that sequence... Um, different regulatory sequences upstream or downstream at different regions of the genome are called regulatory elements. And an enhancer is an example of a regulatory element. What that means in various simplistic terms is it kind of controls 
whether that gene is, is turned up, so you can sort of boost it a little bit, you can turn it down a little bit. So we think about it in terms of a switch, maybe it helps turn it on or off, or reostat, right? It's sort of, it's like a light dimmer switch, right? It turns it down a little bit, it cranks it up a little bit, and so hence the name enhancer. It has the ability to sort of modulate the expression of that gene subtly, because you can imagine that individual genes in a cell, they need to be expressed at a very specific level. So these enhancers, in response to extrinsic cues from outside the cell or intrinsic developmental timing, will will turn up or down these individual these individual genes. And the way we identify enhancers is by looking specifically at uh, protein marks, right? So covalent marks on these these histone proteins that wrap around the DNA, and those are really indicative if if an enhancer is 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 present if it's active, if it's repressed, or if it's poised, right? So by looking at these, what we call epigenetic or outside of the DNA uh, sequences, um, we can really evaluate whether or not uh, these enhancers are present and if what they're doing to modulate gene expression within a cell. And they so, do this by uh, uh, manipulating the shape of the DNA, correct? Or like the structure to expose the genome to polymerases, essentially, right? Yes, Exactly. So the enhancers will loop over and physically interact uh, with the promoters and, and either either enhance or aid uh, transcription by RNA polymerase or, or block or prevent or, or pause that. So really, essentially, genes don't have to necessarily turn off. It could just be that they're expressed at a very low basal level, and then when they're needed, the enhancer gets accessed, if you will, and the boom, that causes a burst firing, if you will, of the gene and or genes, and then eventually that once that enhancer gets kind of covered up again or something, uh, the gene will go back down to basal rate. So it's really just a way for the uh, for the genome to be responsive, I guess. Uh, um, it's a way for dynamic regulation of individual of individual genes. So then, so go ahead. So just just um, you know, it's in the paper. So then you saw a certain signature in this. In the mouse ES, and then upon transition, right, you saw that it kind of lost some of those and, and acquired something else. So, can you just talk about that transition a little bit in terms of what you saw? So, this was really the most important part, and really the most surprising to us, right? You have very few genes that are different at the expression level, at the transcript level between these cells, and so you would then imagine, okay, the genes that are different, the genes that are specific to mouse ES cells, would have specific enhancers that would be different from the epilepsy stem cells, and the genes in the epilepsy stem cells that are different would have different enhancers, right? So you'd imagine there'd be a small number of enhancers that were different between these two cell types. But there was a huge number of enhancers, and moreover, the number of enhancers that were different between these two cell types were as different as any two cell types could be. So if you took a cardiomyocyte and a pancreatic islet cell and you looked at their enhancer overlap, it's about 15 to 20%, right? And it's the same for these two mouse ES cells and epiblast wow. So they were hugely divergent, and we initially thought, you know, we're, we're missing something, something's wrong. But actually digging, digging deeper into the data over, over you know, a painstaking number of years here, what we found was really quite surprising, which was that all the genes that are expressed at the exact same level between these two cell types, right, you would consider these constitutively expressed in the pluripotent state, right, so a pluripotency-enriched set of genes, all of them are for the most part, regulated by different enhancers in the mouse ES cells than they are in the epiblast stem cells. Mm. So that was hugely surprising to us because one would imagine why would you completely switch 
these regulatory elements that are controlling the exact same gene in these in these two states. And I think the answer comes back to the sort of you know convoluted and maybe complicated discussion that we had at the beginning, which is that mammals are quite unique in their in their transition from placental mammals in particular are, are quite unique in their transition from uh, a pre-implantation to a post-implantation phase, right? Most other organisms, fish, frogs that have been studied, the flies that have been studied, right? They're starting and then they're going through gastrulation. They don't have this early pluripotent pre-implantation phase that you have to maintain the cells in this, in this undifferentiated state until they implant and then can differentiate. So I think that's why we have these two distinct pluripotent states um, in, in at least mouse and rat that have been identified, and people are, of course, moving forward now to identify these two states uh, in, in non-human primates and humans. But I think it provides us really important insight into this early transition when you go from pluripotency to a somatic regulatory program at gastrulation. So then the epigenome, really, and this enhancer profile of these of the epiblast the mouse epiblast stem cells does it look like human embryonic stem cells have you done that i mean i mean it, the, the hypothesis would be that it would be very similar would that be a correct assumption because if, if these cells are, are are more like the human embryonic stem cell then uh would their epigenome presumably kind of the enhancer readout look similar so the the short answer is yes they look similar i think the longer answer is that Doing the cross-species comparison at the epigenetic level is a bit it's a bit complicated because the conservation of these regulatory elements isn't the same as it is mm-hmm. uh, in coding sequences for genes. Sense. They're in different locations. They have different sequences. So I think it's it's a little bit more complex to understand those comparisons. That's sort of the basic level that we've done it. Um, there are uh, similarities between the epiblast stem cells and the human ES and IPS cells. What we did in the paper was. Uh, uh, recently, a number of groups have begun to derive a more mouse embryonic stem cell-like or so-called naive human pluripotent cell. And so Jacob Hanna's group uh, in Israel has done this, and he has uh, epigenetically profiled these cells. So we looked to understand if these enhancer differences were maintained in the human naive and standard human yes cells. And it looks like it looks like they are, and so it looks like there's a very similar dynamic transition in the epigenetic landscape uh, in human pluripotency uh, as well. So this seems to be all the rage lately, right? Making a naive cell, naive stem cell in the human system. So making that mouse embryonic stem cell that lift-dependent, if you will, cell in the human. Yosef and I were talking. We talked about this a bit, a bunch on the show. We had, we had Dieter on, who talked about SCNT, and then we had we had uh, Jacob Hanna on, who wasn't talking about that, but we know that his lab, like you said, just published something like this. And there's a bunch of other stories out and around. We saw at ISSCR. If, if I had to put on my, uh, Yosef and I argue about this a bunch. I think we're on the same side. Yosef, correct me if I'm wrong. But if I had to put my technical hat on i'm taking off my developmental biology hat which my that hat tends to be a lot more interested in a lot of things but if i had to put on my translational technical show me the money hat do we do we care about which what's the starting cell if they're all pluripotent and they can give us the derivative we need is there an advantage do you think to be using a naive cell a primitive cell compared to the current human es cell that we're using I think when we started uh, to understand that there were two distinct pluripotent states, uh, there, wa- there were quite strong technical advantages to each of the states. And so, for example, 
example, the naive state at the time uh, was the prototypical mouse embryonic stem cell. We can grow huge numbers of these cells quite easily because when you when we culture the cells in the laboratory, we dissociate them down to single cells. Right? It doesn't sound like so. Who cares? But the human embryonic stem cells at the time, the so-called prime state, right, equivalent to the epiblast stem cells, you had to break up in small little clusters. They were much more tedious to passage. So if we're talking about clinical translation, the ability to grow billions and billions of cells was, was in theory, facilitated by having a naive cell. The other advantage was that the naive state was thought to be more amenable to homologous recombination, which at the time efficiencies were quite low. So if you wanted to make a transgenic line, that is edit a gene or knock out a gene or put in a reporter, having a naive cell uh, really facilitated that. I think as we've advanced technologically, right, CRISPR-Cas technology enables gene editing, uh, gene manipulation in the prime state quite readily. Many labs, including ours, do this quite routinely. Right. The ability to grow these cells, uh, the, the prime cells, has been augmented by new media and, and different cocktails of growth factors. So we can grow these cells pretty, pretty well now into pretty large numbers. Uh, there are mechanisms to single-cell passage the prime cells. So I think a lot of the technical advantages have sort of gone away for the, for the most part. Um, there is one advantage, I think, that is, is still technical and really interesting in that the naive cells when you inject them back into a blastocyst embryo, will make, will integrate into the embryo and will make what's called a, a chimera, right? Mm. And so in the human, obviously, this is not something that's, 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 that's being studied, but in, if you thought about it in the non-human primate sense, having a non-human primate naive cell may facilitate the ability to make transgenic monkeys, which would be, which would be a big win for the field. But again, CRISPR-Cas technology uh, and talent technology has now provided a mechanism to do that potentially relatively easily. So the technical answer, I think, in the short two years is, is no. Right now, there's not really a huge advantage. But if you go back to the development, the development hat, there, there's a huge advantage, I think, to understanding these two distinct phases of pluripotency. Yeah, to me, it seems like we've gone from the gold standard to the platinum standard. And we've just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've upped the game in a sense of what is, uh, you know, the most uh, basic stem cell. Um, so that, that's cool. It's, it's important. It's an important finding. Yeah. I mean, it is important philosophically and for the developmental, just to understand how the, you know, embryo progresses is very important. It's just technically, um, I, I, I don't see it, but I, I asked Paul because he's in this and maybe he had some technical, uh, pluses and he listed them. And so I think Paul, before we move, before we move on to, uh, just to cap this and go on to, you know, our next set of questions that we ask you about where you think therapies might come from. Why don't you just quickly tell a little bit? This is this is one study from your lab, but I know it doesn't really touch on uh, the disease or the f- disease focus in your lab. I know you do quite a lot of work in the nervous system. So just quickly, if you would, just sum up what your lab in the terms of uh, neurological disease, what you're studying and what you hope to do. I think our, our overarching focus is really creating and utilizing these stem cell technologies, including uh, embryonic stem cells and epiblast stem cells and, and iPS cells to to understand and potentially treat uh, diseases of the nervous system. Uh, particularly, we're interested in the lab in a, in a cell type called the oligodendrocyte, and we often think of the central nervous system as just a a, a, a bunch of wires, right? The neurons that allow uh, signals to to move from one area to the other. But there are many other cell types, 
in the brain, including this, this oligodendrocyte, that are important for function. And what these oligodendrocytes do is they wrap around nerve axons, they create this insulating sheath that's sort of a coat for neurons that allows for the effective conduction of signals uh, throughout the central nervous system and throughout the rest of the body. And when those oligodendrocytes become dysfunctional, Diseases like multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, uh, congenital disorder, genetic disorders like glucose dystrophies, uh, even things like mental health disorders and schizophrenia, as well as age-related dementia and even recently ALS have all been associated at one at some level with loss of oligodendrocytes or myelin function. And so at the time when I started my laboratory, there weren't really great protocols that enabled us to make oligodendrocytes and their progenitor cells, which are very creatively named oligodendrocyte progenitor cells, uh, in the lab. And so we, we, we spent the last four years really developing technologies that allow us to access uh, these oligodendrocyte and oligodendrocyte progenitor cell fates. And so we published a number of papers over the last few years showing that we can take epiblast stem cells, and, uh, mouse embryonic stem cells, as well as human pluripotent cells now, and generate these cells from individual patients via iPS cells or embryonic stem cells in the lab. And now we can begin to utilize these to explore the development of this lineage, right? mapping these changes as these cells go from a progenitor to a terminally differentiated functional oligodendrocyte, as well as to understand if we can create cell populations that we might be able to use in transplantation-based regenerative medicine uh, for things like MS and the leukodystrophies. That's really cool. In fact, you know, I don't know if you saw this. Sorry, Yos, because um, I, I, I keep saying we should move forward, and I keep like going backwards. Um, I just talked about it in the uh, in the roundup before. Did you see that the Geron trial, the clinical trial, is it might be continued like years later? Did you see this? So you know, like, so everyone like Geron was the company that had the first real. There was the first like stem cell approved yeah, clinical they f- trial. They filled that out just, that uh, fourteen hundred page uh, FDA form. Yeah, everybody remembers that FDA form. That's what they remember. I find that so amazing. I remember when they when they talked about that. They had like these these cells. They had this oligodendrocyte kind of thing that they were putting into patients, and I, I, nobody could nobody could re- repeat the protocol. I remember there was this whole like argument. Anyway, it, Geron, that whole trial went down. It stopped, and now there's like the two years later, I guess there's a company that was launched by these two former CEOs, Geron CEOs. They uh, purchased the business, and now they have this BioTime as the company, and they're going to resume this spinal cord injury uh, clinical trial. So it's a subsidiary of Biotime. It's, it's a Stereus. Yeah, Stereus. That's right. That's exactly what it is, Stereus. Is, is, yeah. it, is it the same cells? Is that they're it's same? the same cells. So they're, they're still calling them OPCs, but on the first slide of every presentation, they, they basically say this is just a mixture of neural cells, and they've characterized them. So I think there's very few OPCs, all going to progenitor what? cells what? within the cultures. They have mixtures of neural progenitor cells, atrocytes. So there's a whole mixture of cells, and they know what they are. And so they're calling that mixture what? the I, product. I, I don't get it. Why don't they just sort for, like, PDGFR alpha or O4? I mean, we have ways of purifying OPCs. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the cells, and, you know, of course, they're a company, so they have they have IP around the ability to create this particular product. And so uh, um, it's not entirely clear if the the early time points and the protocols that they're using uh, are actually capable of generating sort of real bona fide OPCs at, at high yield. And so they also believe that there's some cell-cell signaling and interactions of these populations of cells that might be 
uh, might be helpful. Although spinal cord injury is, is such a complicated uh, disease, if you're thinking about a myelin type of repair strategy, it's complex to think about how you're going to interpret that as the sort of first as the first trial for these for these types of cells. Although I think that trial is important for the field just to get it on everyone's radar. It made news all of the time. But the complexities of spinal cord injury for remyelination, which is not necessarily clear if it would, would help in an acute spinal cord injury anyways, um, makes yes. it a little bit challenging. So yes. there were advantages for the field, but uh, the data is, is going to be interesting to see how it progresses. Yeah, it's sort of like if you had a copper wire and uh, you cut it and you only replaced the rubber outside, it, you know, it's the, <laughs> it, you still need the, the copper wiring. <laughs> But I, I don't know. It, it, it could definitely increase weaker signals that are trying to. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a you know remyelination or spinal cord injury person, but that's how I envision it uh, in terms of you know all the stuff that's been done with rats and. Uh, but anyhow, we should move on to the. I guess we've already covered the where's the beef uh, question, but where do you think like uh, other besides OPCs and this current uh, you know trial? It, where do you think the nearest cures from stem cells are going to come? And of course, the field is is moving forward quite rapidly um, in in the eye, particularly in macular degeneration. So there's a number of, of trials that have been initiated and a number of additional ones in the way. So I think in the eye is really a great place um, to, to, to start here because you can you can see it and you can evaluate it, right? So if you put cells in the back of the eye, a patient can come back into the clinic and you can look at, at those cells uh, with, with specialized scopes. And so it provides the ability to monitor the cells. When we ex- inject cells into the brain, they're, they're, they become a mystery for, forever. And so it becomes a little bit more complicated. So I think the eye is really an ideal place to start because it provides a nice mechanism uh, for us to, to watch these cells uh, over time. Of course, um, near and dear to both of your hearts is, is Parkinson's disease. I think um, the work uh, that, that you and others and, and Lorenz and, and Studer's Lab and others have pushed forward are really going to provide uh, a great framework for moving forward with with midbrain dopamine neuron transplants for Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, I'm going to come back to just OPCs for one second. I think I think they re- all the progenitors really do have uh, many advantages. When we think about a stem cell transplant, we want you want to be able to replace much, if not all, of of the tissue or the organ. And so when you think about that for most organs, it becomes really complicated. How do you replace all of the cardiomyocytes or how do you pre- replace a particular layer within the kidney? Right? But for all going to say progenitor cells, Steve Goldman's lab has really pioneered this technology and shown, just like the classical hematopoietic stem cell, almost, that when you put these cells in, they will migrate, they will engraft over time, and you can repopulate the entire central nervous system of a mouse with new functional oligodendrocyte progenitor cells that make new functional myelin. So I think for some of these congenital disorders that are quite rare but quite severe, that oligodendrocyte progenitor cells in the near term uh, would provide a real uh, benefit in therapy. Yeah, Steve Goldman's data is really beautiful. If you look at those brains and how well those cells integrate, the, the transplanted cells integrate into the, the brain are just amazing. So uh, given that, uh, I guess we can uh, move on to the last segment. If you'd be willing to maybe share a funny story from either your postdoc days or graduate school or being a professor, uh, can, would you like to share with our audience? 
this is maybe a more of a, a life lesson than a funny story. So there's a bit there's a bit of humor uh, in it. So I was I was thinking back a little bit to when I started uh, graduate school. So I was in this program that was uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health to do my graduate work at Oxford. And so Ron Mackay was uh, a co-advisor with Richard Gardner while I was in while I was in graduate school. And so I was I went to Oxford and I was you know really gung ho. I was you know very excited. So I was the first one in, last one out, seven days a week. Uh, you know, you got you guys know you guys know the drill. And so I was getting good data. I was really excited. Life was good. I was I was working really hard. And we had a meeting. Um, and and Ron and Richard were both there. Uh, this was about maybe uh, eight months into my PhD. And Ron came up to me and said, "Richard's really worried about you." <laughs> and and my my heart like my stomach sank. I thought maybe. He wasn't happy with my progress, or my, my my data wasn't good. And he said he's going to talk to you. He's going to talk to you later. I told him to talk to you. And so Richard is a very you know proper English gentleman. He's one of the, the best developmental biology biologists of our time. He's now retired, been knighted by the Queen. He's living up in the Yorkshire Dales in England, um, enjoying enjoying his retirement. But uh, he said he he came to me and said. In the most proper English gentleman way, I'm going to summarize it in the American way now, which was, Paul, you need to get a life. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, I didn't really understand it uh, completely at the time. It took me maybe another year. But what he was saying was that you're living in a a different country. There's a whole new culture to explore and being happy and doing things. And, you know, I was having I was having fun, but he wanted me to spend more time. Uh, you know, exploring the culture and you know, getting getting uh, sort of all of the English benefits of being there. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity uh, to be there. So I've really sort of taken that to heart. You know, at the time I wanted to come back quite quickly. My girlfriend at the time, then fiance, now beautiful bride, was back here in the states. So I was I was itching to get to get everything done and get back here. But I sort of live my life based on the, that advice now, which is work really hard, but enjoy everything as much as possible um, and not get so wrapped up in, in the lab that it just it becomes work, right? Because it's, it's fun to all of us who do it. But uh, uh, so that was, that was a, a I hope you share story. that with your grad students. Do you, do you share that with them or do you expect them to be there and have no life as well? Because I, I agree with you, man. I think, I think it's and I, and I, I remember I, I used to fall. So I used to sleep in the microscope room in grad school and wake up because I knew I was coming back at 7 a.m. I figured like, you know, it's 2 a.m. I'm just going to sleep here. And my advisor at the time, and, and it would be like, listen, you have to go home. Like you, you need to go home, go home, get some rest, go do something. Um, and so I kind of had that example too. And I, I, you know, I, I haven't had that conversation with my students, but I think I would because it is true. Like you do need to have other things. Yeah, I do. I do it all the time. And I try to be really proactive about it um, if I can and just say, you know, go home. It's a holiday. Go home. Don't come in. Do you got to You got to love your life and enjoy life outside of the lab to be able to to do what we do at a high level uh, in the lab. Because otherwise, it's just a grind all around, and it's it's really tricky. When you get that speech, you should do it in a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> I have a terrible f- fake British accent. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. Yo, is yours any? Uh, no, not no. at all. But I, I try. Uh, finally, uh, let's move on to the rant. Uh, who's got a rant for us today? Is I'm, I'm going to rant because uh, Paul inspired me to rant. Actually, I uh, 
I talked about, I don't know, Paul, if you caught the last episode yet, but I was talking about, which was my segue into introducing you for the next, for this show, I was talking about um, people presenting unpub- unpublished data at conferences. And um, I don't necessarily want to rant about that, because while it does really irk me a bit, um, I, I kind of want to rant about um, this idea that we have to be so close to the vest uh, and, and and not offer our unpublished data. Um, I feel that really, in order to truly advance science, especially to nowadays, um, the best thing you can do is to just kind of be open about your work and really just talk frankly about it. And unfortunately, which really, really pisses me off sometimes, people are just unwilling to do that. And I get it. I get it, right? I, I'm, I'm in the game too. I get it. But, you know, is it, if I, if I sit there with you, and I talk to you about my work. Are you really going to take all that, do it, and publish it before me? I mean, it, what is, this, is there a statistic on that? I really would love to know that because uh, unless someone is doing exactly what you're doing, I feel like it takes a while and a long time to really get involved in something else. So my, I guess my rant is about um, just people unwilling to kind of push the, push the scientific process along by being more open. And and I don't know how you change that, Paul. I mean, I guess with like you know we're, we we train future scientists, and uh, you know I feel like a lot of grad students today and postdocs are incredibly guarded about their data. I mean, I've heard stories of lab meetings where they they refuse to do lab meeting because they wouldn't they didn't want to put their data up in front of the people in their lab. I mean, this is just is really really bothering me. So I'm curious to hear your take on it. If you have any suggestions on what the hell we can do to make it a little more open for people to exchange. I don't really have a solution uh, other than to, to train the folks in, in our lab and who are associated with that there, there is an alternative. I think particularly now times are tough, resources are tight, and everyone sort of scrunches, scrunches down and, and sort of hoards uh, their, their data and their ideas because that's their currency for, for, moving, for moving forward. And, you know, it's, it's a huge it's a huge issue in the field. I can also see the other side of, you know, there have to be some things that are protected at the IP level because if there aren't companies who can have commercial benefit from them down the road, then things may or may not be commercialized. But there has to be a better way. And the only way we can do it is by leading, right? So all of the data from my lab at the ISSCR was all unpublished data. And I think if we continue that trend as, as a group, as the so-called current or next generation of, of, of stem cell scientists, I think uh, maybe we can make a little bit of a difference. Nice. Definitely. Yeah, I hope so, because it's, it's one of the things that really, really, uh, I'm all for scientific progress. I talk about it a lot for education of science. But when you get to this level and you're producing data, I don't want to go talk to someone and say, hey, you know, I have this really great idea. Check this out. And then, oh, I know you're doing similar stuff. What do you have? And they're like, Meh, I don't really know. I can't really talk about it. No, I like, All right. I, well, I guess we can't really go forward here. It was nice talking to you. I, li- so, I like uh, your poker analogy, though, you know, close to the vest. It's like people just sort of get very guarded and put on almost a poker face and bluff about what's going on, you know, with the data. And it, it's, it does get a little, uh, I don't know gangster <laughs> so i guess my i guess go ahead paul I mean, what pisses me off kind of even even more than than that is it goes with the same poker analogy is that i would say maybe 10 to 15 percent of the posters at, at these big conferences are not there even though the abstracts are really exciting and tantalizing because i think you put in and if it doesn't get published or accepted before the conference 
don't put the poster up because you don't want to tell anybody until until it's published, and that that pisses me off. I saw, yeah, I see that too. That's that's just a disaster. Those are the ones I frequently have all those circled, and I'm so pumped to go get it or go talk, and they're they're not there, they're not up. Um, you know, that, that that's another situation where you have like you're asked to submit an abstract for a meeting that's like four months or five six months away, and we know that's a long time. Yeah. Where you, you you know it's a long time coming, so I guess there are, are 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 things, but like you said, the only thing we really can do is change it from within. So you try to teach your people, your your students, your postdocs, trainees, whatever. In in a, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should all get up there and divulge every single piece of information that we have currently going. Obviously, I understand, but there needs to be a more. Uh, I want to help. I want to see if we can get to similar endpoints, doing different things quicker by you letting me know what you got going on, and I tell you what I got going on. I feel like that's just should be the natural yeah, yeah. Uh, progression. I'm sure there's ways to do it without giving away the whole farm. You know, just like uh, Gene X or whatever. Uh, it's, it's you know, didn't Shenya present his reprogramming data uh, before it was actually published? Yes. You know, so and he called it what Gene X Y Z. I'm not sure, but um. Yeah, I think they were ECAD. What was it? Embryonic stem cell express transcript or something like that. Yeah, I remember, and I remember some some idiot got up there and was like, the first question was, "Can you tell us what the genes are?" (laughs) (laughs) He's like, "I purposely didn't for a reason." Um, You know what though? This is my last thing. I got a bunch of crap for doing that. Uh, My nickname became Gene. I think Paul, you were there for that. Yeah, I remember. I I wanted to tell my new data story, but I didn't want to give the gene away just because I I knew someone in the audience was was had the same data set as me and and would potentially start exploring it so i said you know what I'm, i don't want to be that guy who doesn't talk about the data so i'm going to talk about everything but i'm just not going to give the name of the gene i'm just going to call it gene well forever <laughs> and ever from that point on people started calling me gene gene hackman so, so yeah still to this day i'll get emails be like hey gene can you do me a favor can you send me some of that and i'll be like i can't believe i'll never live that down so like i try to do something like that and they still make fun of me what am i gonna do that's great all right anyway paul man Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure having you on and talking to you, man. You're, uh, you're like a you're a really fun guy to talk to and, and do some really great work. So the combo makes it makes it a lot easier. So uh, we really appreciate it. Congrats on the paper and everything you got going on there. Thanks very much, guys, for having me on. Best of luck with the podcast and loyal listener. Many of the folks in my lab are as well. So keep up the the great work and it's really helpful for the field. All right, thanks great. a lot, man. Have a good one. Enjoy your vacation. Dude, I'll talk to you later. I will. Take care. See you guys. Bye.